So I mentioned that this is a more somber sermon, and that is because we've arrived at a portion where, and albeit the Messiah is providing solace and comfort to his disciples, uh, there is a sense of reality that he also wants to make a point, and he wants to have it addressed to them. If you turn to your Bibles now, we will continue in the Gospel of John in chapter 15. And we will be reading from verses 18 to 21. It reads, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Let us now go to our Lord God in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful uh, the tender mercies you have for us to be here today with faculties attached. Uh, coming to this reality that comes bearing in our walk, there are those who have seen and testified and understand what you have your son tell the disciples. It is with great weight we take this today because we've been afforded such mercies and loving kindness. And yet many, wherever they are, may not realize the sense of seriousness and the reality that comes with this walk. So now we take this time to consider today what your son has said. Be with thy servant as he teach your sheep. And may they have a childlike love and a willing mind to see the severity and the seriousness and the gravity that which the Messiah shows in being his disciple. For the price is heavy, but we thank you that you sent your son and knowing that if that time comes, we are indeed looking to that day when he calls us back and say good and my faithful servant. To Christ's holy and precious name we pray, amen. So, you heard the words of the Lord. These are very serious words. There's no sugarcoating it. There's no making this optimistic in some way, shape, or form. So to begin, I want to take you down memory lane. And we have this advantage because the scripture, as we know, is now closed. And we have many references to turn back to. So I want to bring your attention back to the Old Testament. In particular, we are aware of the tribes of Israel, 12 in number, of which one particular patriarch, Joseph, was among the 12. And unlike his father, Jacob, who took the birthright of his older brother, Joseph made no ill malice or intent to his 12 brothers. Born from Rachel, his brother, Benjamin, that means 
blood brother because Rachel had two sons. Scripture has it that his father loved him much. And upon this love that overflowed, he prepared him a gift, a tunic or some sort of clothing to portray that. But this love that a father had for his son, the other 11 did not take kindly to it. So in light of all this, their heart burned with rage. Sin encroached their heart. And they were moved to such ferocity that they were willing to sell him to their very own enemies, the Ishmaelites. But then all that Joseph suffered, whether it be wrongful accusations, whether it be given into his own enemies, or while imprisonment, he saw empty promises. He stated to his brothers by Genesis 50, 19 through 20, that I am not to be afraid for I am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. That takes a lot of courage, a lot of moxie, as we would say in our day and age, given everything he went through. So with that introduction, this segue is now clean. From where we last left off in chapter 15 with verses 12 to 17, Isaiah showed that the Messiah taught the disciples his command to love one another, a command that is regulated by standards in the law of God. The law of God and the command to love one another are conjoined. So then our master then brings along this love because he doesn't lie to them. He tells them severity of what's going to transpire. This is another form of love, the truth. And sometimes, I mean, like I said, the Lord can make a donkey speak truth, as the humans can also say the truth hurts. And this is a reality of which the telling note that now he's coming towards a relationship that they are to have with the world and what's going to transpire, especially after he is gone. He states in the beginning by verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A pragmatic person would never dare to take the criticism and malice for one another because they would say, well, he or she had it coming. But for the Christian, our criticism and malice comes because we, especially in this day and age, are following someone who we've never seen before and let alone, according to the humanists and presumptuous Christians, following men who are speaking folklore. Now, many of you may have encountered these individuals. And before you uttered a single syllable, you were given 
prejudicial statements. And it could have been because where you could have been walking from. Or it could have just transpired from what your appearance looked like. No matter what, the world will find some fault. It can be grave. It can also be naive. Yet alone, they will find fault. Many individuals have different melanin counts in one's skin. They will still find fault. Many will look at your assortment or your attire. They will still find fault. But what's ironic is that they're still willing to band together as one unit if they were to bring great malice against the Christian faith. And they will do it through passive aggression or sometimes they might be outright blunt. All they see is the world through their own gaze. So the light in which the master's words are speaking of, he provides a warning first and foremost. You see, the warning, believe it or not, is that the disciples should avoid haughtiness. That's another $10 word here. And the haughtiness that should be avoided is because their vocation of which they are or they have been attributed to comes with great right. So do not let them hate you because you've done something that will cause them to be enraged. But rather, if you are doing the work which is to spread the kingdom as they've been commanded to do when they do hate you. They hate you because of me. Now look at our present day because this warning as I bring to you here verse 18 also transpires to us. The universal church as the humanist sees or as the world sees is fractured. They see Catholics against Protestants. They see Anglicans versus Methodists versus Episcopalians versus Baptists versus Congressionalists versus Presbyterians. They see the Reformed versus the Antinomians. All the humanists can point to is dissension. But the Messiah is stating and noting, no. They may see dissension, but their hate is drawn because they hated me first. So as to the warning that they were invited, let your decisions not be the cause of their hatred. Our decisions should not be, should not fall in that same realm. So know this as the master is speaking. If you're doing the work of God and you receive any malice, know true, stand hold and continue to push on forward because their hate is generated from what they've known from the beginning at the time of their birth. They were born in sin and they know nothing other than that. Now, by verses 18 and 19, we're going to segue here. We have a juxtaposition because 
Yes, though from a bracketed perspective, 12 through 17, we note the love to one another as disciples have the relationship amongst themselves as well with the relationship with the world in upholding the law of God. But as we come to, especially with the bracket that is coming with verses 18 to 27, and we're only stopping at 21 because the gravity of this situation is a reality that must be brought now. By verse 18 and 19, there is a small but yet understood juxtaposition. Because by verse 18, he shows of which why the world hates you. But then, on the contrary, if the world love you, well, there's a cause. You are of the world. You tolerate, condone what the world loves. And now there's something interesting to bring note, especially in particular, because now verse 19 can also be its own standalone. You see, there's two particular conjunctions in verse 19. The word but. Normal English would have it that this is not normal to have both of them in one sentence. And the reason why is because that particular word is used to compare and contrast the previous statement. But if the two are using the same sentence, they are negated. So grammatical rules, according to the English, is that if you were to reread verse 19 and remove the two conjunctions, it reads like this. If you were of the world, the world loved its own. Because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Now from the grammatical English, this is seen as a run-on. But and upon stating the sentence, just stating it, not reading it, just stating it, the humanists, based on these particular rules, they will actually see a schism. Because they're noting here. Well, what seems to be the problem? Because he's using two conjunctions that's supposed to negate, and you got two negatives, they negate each other, therefore there's no need to use it. Well, I tell you right now, again, there is no schism in Scripture. And I take it upon this premise, if you actually take verse 18, and I will use your same philosophy upon the negations. Now, let me read it back to you and let me see if this makes more clarity. Or is it more clear? If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me first before it hated you. Because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. There's a difference. Because of the way, and especially the phraseology that the master is using, the world, again, denotes their disparity with Christianity. So if anyone ever comes up and brings you this argument, just have them read verse 18 and then let them continue to fall down that hole they like to follow. But nonetheless, not to go away from here, an affirmation is clear and is stemmed from the fact as the two is conjoined. The master states, I chose you out of this world. From that fact, can you follow? Therefore, you are not of this world. And because you are not of this world, you do not condone or tolerate what the world loves. That's why they hate you. Verse 18 makes it very clear. So the message here was a warning to the apostles and it was well understood. And albeit, they're going to be officers of the church. 
And again, we've heard the word church be thrown willy-nilly. I mean, you have various sects that also use the word church. And if you want to take the literal definition, church means the elect or the chosen ones. But albeit, given the context, especially the fact that the master state of your or disciples in this situation, them being pulled out of the world, being chosen. These are chosen men who are leading chosen people. And therefore, their attitude and behavior should be attributed to the master and how he has behaved. I mean, look at our own title. When someone says, you, you're a Christian? It comes from the little Greek word, Christianos, which means little Christ. You embark on a journey to emulate the Messiah. So that means everything. And I mean everything. That transpired with him. You can expect that for you as well. Now, it's kind of ironic because historically... There are individuals who say that the word Christian was supposed to be a jeer and an insult to those who follow Christ. But if you like, and I know those who are taking notes, the first mention of Christianos was actually seen in Acts 11, 19 through 26. I actually save some time to read this here because I want to show you just the development of the church and the movement that it took in its infancy. It reads, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phenonicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And the considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Taurus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You see, albeit that if the humanists want to use the term Christianity, and use it as a term of insult and jeer. We embrace that. Because of what it means. We take on and want to follow the example of Christ. But now in segueing to verses 20 and 21. This is what makes it even more somber. Because of all these things, and I'll read 21 here first because I want to bracket it properly to show you the severity 
and the seriousness that comes with the Christian walk. But at verse 21, it reads, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Such an iteration was actually heard before, and we've heard it time and time again. All these things, these things I have spoken to you. I mean, if I bring your attention back to the earlier part of the chapter, we noted about that joy that the Messiah spoke about his joy being your joy and that it be made full, especially in the summation of what transpired with the first 10 verses. Well, here, the Lord is actually speaking on a summation. But the summation is a bracket because as we're going to get to the latter portion of this chapter, you're going to notice how he brings himself in the context of fulfilling the scripture. But that's, that's what's going to be transpired in the following sermon after this one. But here in the summation of what he's just spoken in these first three verses, technically, he's showing that they will, they will have a persecution that will be done to them, but it's for his name's sake. Because the key point is they do not know the one who sent him. Here the Lord explains in the suffering that they will take. It comes in full circle from verse 18. For what they will do to them or what will be done to them stems from their hatred of him first. And recall, the Jews stated to the Messiah in John 10, 33, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. But how about Stephen? What ill will did he do? Well, according to Acts 6, 13 through 14, it reads, This man insistently speaks against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say, that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and the altar, the customs which Moses handed down to us. The Messiah's words ring true. Everything that transpired is because they do not know him, nor the one who sent him. Now, going back to verse 20, he notes that there's a remembrance of some sort. He reads, and he states, Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. This was first said in John 13, 16. Again, a slave is not greater than his master. But how does the two juxtapose? In verse 16, as it continues, it states, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And this, in verse 16, recall in chapter 13 on John, he showed the servitude attribute that he took and upon which he humbled himself, especially in a leadership role. And so this attitude is expected of his disciples. I sent you. If you see me doing this, emulate me or emulate what I've done to others, especially in the vocation that you've taken. Well then, little did they know in that emulation of their own master, they would take on the same persecution that he had to take. 
4. He continues in verse number 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And <laughs> the deliverance of seeing him delivered into their hands. He's conveying the truth and reality that you will be delivered into their hands as well. Now, most of them will see death by the hands of their enemies. And one will not. But nevertheless, this remembrance of which the master is making a comparison to his disciples is a note of the embodiment of this journey that they just are about to realize and what they're going to do and their vocation to bring the kingdom forward. And being as a master, serving as an example to his disciples. I bring you to First Peter chapter 2. And knowing that his master and the purpose that he came in for. Note what one of his disciples said of him. Remember now, Christ is the master. And they are his. Are they supposed to emulate him? He reads and by verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. By verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, yet he was reviled. He did not reviled in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but <laughs> he kept entrusting himself to him who judged righteously. Sounds like Joseph now, doesn't it? So that perhaps the apostles may be naive and they consider surely if we just say the right words, maybe we might find people who have changed of heart. I mean, you can say whatever you want to tickle somebody's fancy. And they will follow you. Hmm. Well. The master was speaking truth. And at many times he did good works. But what transpired. After miracle. After signs. After wonders. What transpired in the attitude of those who saw. Well let's go to John 10. 30, verse 32. He stated to them. I showed you many good works from the father. For which of them. Are you stoning me? And what does the Jews do? Well, they pick up stones to kill him. Okay, well, let's go a little bit, a little bit back into the past here. And John 8, while he was in the temple, testifying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. He was told his testimony was not true because he spoke of himself. But the Messiah spoke that someone does testify about him, his father. Does that not bring to light 
the meaning of verse 21 in John 15. But, I mean, what can he say? By the end of his little soliloquy, by verse 59, the Jews picked up the stones to try to kill him. Well, okay, let's go back a little bit, a little bit back more in the past. How about perform the work of healing a lame man? And just by the command of his voice, he said, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. John 5 verse 8. But then in John 7, in showing how he was properly fulfilling the law of Moses, the master reiterated him by John 7 verse 19. If I, if I've healed this man, why do you seek to kill me? So the message here is clear. They will persecute you because they persecuted me. Now, the latter clause in verse number 20 might give some hope because he states, as it's going to conclude there with that verse, if they kept my word, they will keep you also. So here the meaning is actually quite clear, actually. They won't persecute you because those who know the command to love one another and to, and to the most sincerity of ways, know the word of God and understand the law of God, they actually kept my word first. So he still shows that symbolic working of master and disciple to show how he has come into the world and to save the world. And the disciples reiterate that same message because of the Spirit, they are moved to believe this. And there's example. When the Master speaks, there are those who are moved to show that they have a change of heart. Do you remember the Samaritan people in John 4? By verse 41, many believed because of his word. And they continued saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard it for ourselves that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. How about the centurion servant in Luke 7, 1 through 10? The centurion had a servant who had fallen very ill, and he sent for the master to heal him. But note by verse number 7, when the centurion sends his messengers to read this message to the Messiah, they state, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am to a man sent under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Well, there was hope. When you preach the word and they love you, it's because they love me first. That's what he's reiterating. Hmm. But again, the master is showing his love to the disciples by telling them the truth. If you've seen I've been persecuted, 
you're going to be persecuted too. So the apostles understood it. When did they understand it? Well, they understood it after the master's resurrection. And we will get to that, but if you want to note, it's in John 21, 18 to 23. But especially after that resurrection, and especially after, especially after they were told that they will suffer in the hands of their enemies. The disciples' earthly departure historically goes as follows. This is the harsh reality of Christianity here. Andrew, the brother of Peter, he died by crucifixion. And he was bound, not nailed, to a X-shaped cross. He hung alive for two days while everybody watched. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, he died by being skinned alive and then crucified as he was heading down to Western Asia, also known as modern-day Turkey. James the Greater. The brother of John, the beloved, he was beheaded and stabbed by a sword by King Herod. This is also found in Acts 12, 1 through 2. James the Younger was pushed off the pinnacle of a temple, then stoned, then clubbed to death. Judas Thaddeus, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, he was beaten with a club and then crucified in modern-day Turkey. Matthew, also known as Levi, was staked and speared to the ground because he questioned the morals of the king that was in Egypt. Simon, Peter, was crucified by Emperor Nero. And it's also interesting, given that Peter makes that indication to the master as how he was to die in comparison to the beloved, did not saw him fit. So historical context has stated that he wanted to be crucified upside down. Philip, historically, it was understood that he was tortured and then he was impaled by iron hooks at his ankle and hung upside down to die. He actually was preaching to the people while being hung upside down. Simon the Zealot, also known as Simon the Canaanite, he was crucified, but prior to being, after being crucified, was sawed in half or beheaded. Paul, as we know, who replaced Judas Iscariot, who, if you want to know, is, well, we know it's a scripture context, died by suicide, but that's the only shine that he will probably get from this particular sermon. Paul was beheaded at the request of Emperor Nero at Rome. And John, the beloved, imprisoned on the island of Patmos, was the only one who died of a natural cause. Now, some of you might also be curious, because some people... They wonder, well, you know, that we have writers of the gospel. These men were moved as Peter and Paul, respectfully, dictated Mark and Luke. So how did those two die? Well, in case you were curious, Mark was dragged to death. And Luke, how ironic it was, was hung 
on an olive tree. So what is now the message to us? Christianity is not normal. Not to the world. Because you begin in the offensive. You're telling people the way you live your life and the sin that you're condoning is not proper. That is an offense. So it boggles my mind why all of a sudden we have all these individuals on TV telling you God's going to promise you this and that. Never did it give you the love and the reality that comes with this walk. You know what? I got a little interesting question to put in perspective because there will be those who will be watching this again. But how about these same television evangelists go tell other individuals who have enemies stump into their rooms. They pillage their property. They have raped and murdered their wife and children. They have maimed the men. And you tell them that God is here and he has the best plan for your life. That message won't ring very well with them. We've been afforded, especially in the West, mercy and peace. A reality that many other individuals around the world are not afforded. So when we hear this, we're thinking, and I'm not saying us, but there are individuals who would think, well, that was just back then. There's people who see this in their daily lives. Because they're told, renounce the faith and you will live. We haven't seen that. And you know the scary part? It could still happen to us. That's what's scary. Do you think the Messiah is lying now? You think this is just folklore made by men? But you know what I appreciate about the Messiah? The fact that he doesn't lie to us and told us the truth? That's love. Huh. By John 20, verse 28, the Messiah speaks about those who claim that you needed to see him in order to believe. He said, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. How about the sacrifice those individuals took? Because it's easy. The disciples saw him. Granted, Paul was knocked off a horse. But there are individuals who died. And we've heard it through countless times and through the history of the church who did not see him and yet died in the faith. You think they thought the Messiah was lying then? No. The words that were spoken of by the master and then the 12 apostles and then on to the bishops who spoke and the people were moved in the faith. They took and saw the love of God. Now, I want to be also very clear about this. Because some might be thinking, well, then I'm just going to go out there and put my life in danger. No, that is not the ask. Okay? You're not to go and seek out your own death because 
Here, the point was clear and made in Matthew 24 when he was telling his own apostles to warn the church when the end of the age, i.e. the end of the administration was to come, he gave them particular warnings and you know what the general said in Rome? I am amazed I did not find one Christian. It's amazing. It's amazing how the disciples follow in the footsteps and listen to their master. So the warning here is not for us to go seek the death, but it's a sense of reality and an understanding that if you are told to denounce the faith, and if your life depends on fleeing from your brothers and sisters in Christ, well, think about Stephen when he was put in trial in Acts 7. And note how this is also coming back in full circle, because by Acts 7, 9 through 10, he speaks of Joseph. He read, he states, in the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. Jason brought up a good point last week in this sermon. Preach to yourself. Because there could be a time. Again, like I said, we've been blessed with peace. But there could be a time when this is going to become a reality. And I'm not talking about sticks and stones may break bones, but words will never hurt you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when they are coming in and bashing through that door. And you know the scary part? You may have even elected them. But Jason brought up a good point. If that were to transpire, we should preach to ourselves and to our enemies as Stephen did. Because as they rushed him, as they shut their ears and grounded their teeth and their eyes full of flames, he had the courage to say, Behold, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Whew, that is hard. That is hard. Very difficult saying to state. But it happened. And the Spirit moved Luke to write this for our good. So, when Jason comes back here, he's going to denote and continue in which the Messiah speaks upon this and the fulfillment that he was to take, especially of the persecution he was to take and, and, and embold. But the message to us today is to understand the realities of this Christian walk. It's not the way that they phrase it on television. It's not popular. It is not something the world condones. And we must understand how we've been chosen out of this world. Because we don't look for the animosity and it should not be because of what we do and say of our own wants and volition. But the master stated by verse 18, I read it again. Because when the world hates you doing the work for me as faithful disciples, know that it has hated me, the master, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, before it hated you. Let us go to our Lord our God in prayer.